All right, and we are back once again to Explore Faith and Pursue Grace. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass. And tonight we are joined once again by our very good friend, a uh, repeat guest that we have had on this program many times. We hope to have on the program in many more times in the future, Daniel Rogers. Daniel, thanks for coming back on, brother. Man, thanks so much for having me. I just love the work you guys do, and I love seeing that your uh, your podcast is just exploding. You're telling me about some kind of cool uh, people that have been tuning in, and that that's just that's just so exciting, dude. It really is. We're we're thrilled with the work and the good that this work has done, and we're excited to see where it ends up going in the future. It's I, I really think that you know the best days are ahead, and there's a lot of other good things that are going to happen. Uh, tonight, though, we are going to be discussing a topic that I'm sure is at the forefront of a lot of Christians' minds, and that is the idea of the end times. Are we diving headlong into the end times? And what the current events that are leading us or that are motivating us to have this discussion has to do with the war that has broken out in Russia, or rather in Ukraine at the hands of Russia. There are a lot of people that see the uh, this conflict taking off and they see how this war is being raged. And there are a lot of people that are apprehensive about the future at the very least. There are some people that are absolutely terrified about the future. And I can remember as a young man, whenever things like this would happen, when 9-11 happened and, and other things took place, large, major scale events on the world stage, stuff that you know our kids and our grandkids and great-grandkids are going to be reading about in the uh, history books. Whenever we see events like that happen, it's very common for a lot of Christians to begin to say that this is just further evidence and further proof that we are right here in the end times. It's we're right in the midst of the end times. The end times are upon us. We're about to see revelation play out in all of its gory, scary, horrific imagery in our very, right before our very eyes. It's just a matter of time before the rapture happens and the seven year tribulation and all this other stuff takes place. So you need to get ready. And I can remember as a young man after September 11th, I can remember during um, the war in Afghanistan, during the war in Iraq, during the terrorist attacks in Boston, the terrorist attacks, the bombings in London. I can remember all of these things happening and and thinking, holy smokes, maybe things are about to really kick off. Before I became a convert to the Churches of Christ, it, it was really a fearful time. It was a really fearful thing for me. And even then, that that mindset would still creep up from time to time, even even some years later. So this is something that has a lot of people concerned. It's something that a lot of folks are worried about, and so we're going to discuss that this evening. Yeah, I don't I don't know if you remember Lee when we had Professor Scott Lloyd on to talk about. So in fact, we've had him on a, a several times to discuss various issues. But uh, one time he was just telling his story and some of his background. And they used to, he, he, he grew up in the Pentecostal church as well. I think pretty similar, because uh, I know there's different flavors, if you will, of the Pentecostal church. But he grew up and he said when he was young, I mean, I'm talking like elementary school and middle school, they would actually have rapture drills where they would <laughs> not tell them it was a drill and act like it was a real rapture. And he said they would turn their lots they would like literally turn the lights off in Bible class. They would grab some of the kids and then they would leave other kids in the room and people would just be freaking out saying, you know, the rapture's here. This is it. And he said it just terrified them. But you, you obviously have all sorts of different views on eschatology. When we talk about that word eschatology, it just means end times. It just we're, we're talking about. You know, there's that. That's just the layman word or the layman definition is the end times. And there's a lot of different views pertaining to eschatology. And some people don't take it that far. Obviously, that's probably more of an extreme example. But even within the churches of Christ, uh, depending upon which congregation you attend, there is always this idea of you know, well, the Lord could come back at any minute. And it was very fear-based. It was all about fear. It was all about trying to drive people to impulse decisions, to follow the Lord because you don't know when the Lord's returning. And so, Daniel, just wanted to go ahead and open up the floor to you to tell us a little bit. Of, and We've had you on before. I'm sure our guests, if they've listened, they remember you. But we're not going to get into necessarily the idea of preterism in this episode because we already had you on to discuss that before. But we did want to have you on because... Both Lee and I, 
Lee and I both consider you to be one of the the best scholars on this topic of eschatology. And uh, and we, we really mean that because this is something that you've studied a lot. You have spent a great deal of your life actually studying this topic. And that's why we brought you on to discuss some of these passages to answer the question, are we living in the end times right now? Are these the end times? Is all everything going on? Is this pointing to the fact that the end's about to about to be here? Are we seeing the Bible and the Book of Revelation play out in front of our very eyes? That's that's kind of the question. Anyway, sorry about that. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> Great. And it's all so, on you, so you better answer this for us. <laughs> now, so so to you want me to talk about the different end times perspectives first before we launch into it, right? Yeah, just yeah, give I think that'd be a good idea. You. Okay. Before I even do that, though, I want to go ahead and say that anytime there's an outbreak of war, anytime that people who are made in the image of God are being killed by other people who are made in the image of God, that that is a tragedy regardless of the circumstance. Absolutely. Um, if, if at the end of this podcast we conclude that Matthew 24 and Revelation aren't talking about the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, that in no way minimizes the very real pain and suffering that they're experiencing now. So I don't want anybody to go, oh, you just, you know, you're minimizing what's happening. No, not at all. Yeah, that's, um, that's not the purpose of this episode ex- at all. Exactly. So, well, and Daniel, that, one thing I just, since you brought that up, I want to yeah. inject this into to that point as well, because I think sometimes when we do get so wrapped up in eschatology and just thinking that these are the end times, which anytime a war happens, pretty much people are out there selling books and making money saying that this is the end of time. But it, it almost does lose the humanity when we get so focused or we lose we, we lose the our own humanity almost and getting so focused on the theology of what's going on. We forget the realness that these are real people. These are real wars that are currently taking place, regardless of its its attachment or lack thereof to anything in Scripture. It's horrific, and it's always horrific when something like this happens. Exactly, and and that's a very good point that you make about our how, how our theology can almost dehumanize a situation. Like you know, this is the end times. There's nothing we can do to stop it, so let's just you know, <laughs> let's just give up and let it play out. This is almost pe- some people get know? excited about it. Some people yeah, look forward yeah. to this type of stuff, and they think it's a good thing. Yeah, that's right. And that's something I've seen in my own life is as I've studied some of the things that we're about to study, my mind has changed a lot on our responsibility to take care of the earth, our responsibility to try to bring it into these conflicts with the gospel and things like that. So we'll get into some of that later, but that you're right. Our theology does impact how we view the world around us. And if we just think that the end is at hand and, you know, Jesus could, is just going to come back any day now, and we literally think that that's going to happen with the, within our generation, what motivation do we have to try to put an end to that? Wouldn't we be working against God if we actually believed that that was going to happen? You know? Yeah. We would be uh, in Daniel 11. He, he talks about these three different instances where they tried to bring about the end on their own terms. And it says, but it didn't happen because the end was not yet. And so if we try to stand up and like say, no, God, you know, don't let Russia invade Ukraine because this is the end, you know, or whatever. I don't know how I said that. Get behind me, Satan. Let's not interrupt God's plans here. This is divine work happening, taking place right in front of our eyes. Yeah, exactly. We don't want the end to happen, God, you know, so you could go there if if you took it to its logical conclusion. So let's let's talk about the different uh, end times paradigms. Um, In the majority of the evangelical world, it's premillennial, premillennialism, no doubt. And that really comes, you know, especially from different uh, study Bibles and things that included those charts uh, in the, you know, in the bottom half. I never used one, so <laughs> I don't know all the names, but uh, but also the, you know, the Left Behind series and things like that really played into the premillennial worldview of premillennial worldview exactly. And all those uh, prefixes, premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial, just say something about when Jesus would come. So like premillennial, Jesus would come before the millennium takes place. And there's usually lots of bloodshed and war and, you know, fighting and death and destruction and things that go along with that. And like Kevin pointed out, um, there's a lot of people who look forward to the violence. At least it seems like that in their sermons. You know, these people are going to finally, you know, get what's coming to them is the idea. Um, then there's the post-millennial worldview. In post-millennial, post-millennialism from 
the ones that I'm familiar with, there's okay. There's different branches and brands of all this as there are as many as there are Christians. So, you know, you have to understand these are very broad terms. A post-millennial view is that things are going to get better and better and better. And then there's going to be a millennium, a golden age. And then Jesus comes at the end of the millennium, right? So pre Jesus comes before post Jesus comes after. Um, Alexander Campbell was actually a post-millennialist, especially earlier in his life. And his uh, his publication, and Alexander Campbell, for those of you who don't know, helped kickstart what we call the Restoration Movement or the Stone-Campbell Movement, from which the Churches of Christ uh, came in America. And so the Millennial Harbinger was his, was his uh, baby. It was his publication because he thought that through their work of restoring to the church uh, these things that they believe had been lost— that they were ushering in this golden age of Christianity at the end of which Jesus would come and bring everybody, you know, wrap it all up nicely. Some people believe in a, you know, recreated earth. Some people believe he takes them all to heaven, whatever. It's the idea that he comes at the end of the millennium after an end of a pretty good time. So post-millennialism believes that we're on a trajectory towards really good times, not really bad times from what I understand. Then there's the amillennial view, which basically says, well, we don't know what Revelation 20 is, but it's not what them premillennials think. And, uh, <laughs> and we're in the millennium now. Uh, and, you know, some, it's not a literal thousand years. In postmillennialism, it can be a literal thousand years. In premillennialism, it definitely is a literal thousand years. But, you know, it's not a literal thousand years. It's, it's, uh, it stands for the whole Christian age. And at the end of it, either God's going to blow the whole thing up and take us all home or he's going to recreate the universe, you know, restored earth uh, kind of deal. And then you have uh, partial preterism. Partial preterism can be found in any of these camps, mostly in postmillennial and amillennial, because they're so they're so closely related. Postmillennialism is basically just the more optimistic view of amillennialism, right? <laughs> so uh, partial preterism is that a lot of the prophecies, if not most of the prophecies, in the New Testament had something to do with the fall of Jerusalem or the fall of Rome. As we talked about a long time ago, preterism just means past. So they believe that a partial amount, maybe even most of the prophecies within the New Testament uh, have already been fulfilled. And so a lot of the death and destruction and stuff like that, like in Matthew 24, what we're going to be talking about tonight, has to do with the lead up to the fall of the uh, fall of Jerusalem by the Romans in the first century, or maybe the fall of Rome or something like that. Right. Again, you have different camps. And then of course uh, you had the full preterist view, which believes that all of it was fulfilled uh, sometime around the fall of Jerusalem, which is where I come in. So, you know, I'm, I'm the <laughs> odd man out, I guess, but if you want to know about that, you can go listen to the first podcast tonight. I don't know if there's going to be much said that a classical partial preterist would really disagree with. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I would agree. I would have agreed with this way before I even knew what any of those terms meant. So, well, yeah. in that partial preterist camp, that's the camp that I find myself really leaning in. I, I, I definitely see the, the full preterist perspective and the more I read it, the more, I can see there the more I appreciate it. I'm just still not there yet, but definitely within the amillennial or amillennial and partial preterist perspective, I know that's where I land. And I just want to say that just, you know, from the outset so that our audience knows that's, that's where I come from. That's where I am. That's <laughs> so the audience you know, knows you are not a dirty preterist. Yes. Well, no, no, I don't know. It's, it's not as much that, can't. you know, well, well, the thing is, <laughs> come on, man. No, the, the thing is, is like with this, there are so many different views on the millennium. And like you said, you have, you know, the premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, you know, you have those three branches and under those branches, you have subsets and under those you have subsets and on and on and on it goes. And yeah. a lot of the, um, uh, a lot of the fear really arises more from the premillennial camp concerning the end times and anxiety over the end times. It comes from the premillennial camp and the premillennial perspective more than it does anything else. And yeah, so but, in the interest of full disclosure, I just don't want our audience to, to think, well, where does Lee fall? Where does Kevin fall? We know where Daniel falls. He's, he's one of those, you know, one of those crazy heretics, but you know, <laughs> 
Now you know we love you, brother. Fall. Whenever I get done with a conversation with Daniel, I think I'm a preterist. That's usually how. It's <laughs> usually how the conversation. Well, ends. you're not alone in that camp, brother. But anyway, hey. sorry, I digress. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, I will also say though that. Um, you know how like people quote Second Peter one to you. You know there is no private interpretation when you talk about like this is my interpretation. Oh, say, yeah, well, the Bible yeah, says yeah. there is no private interpretation. All right, so we have a tendency to, to misread passages whenever we want to, you know, <coughs> or read into passages, which is whatever. And so while this mainly does come from the premillennial world, I've seen many of my friends and really you know beloved ones within the Church of Christ who are typically amillennial share passages from Matthew 24. You know, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. So we're not immune to, in moments of intense conflict, read ourselves back into some of these texts that we typically see as already having been fulfilled. Yeah, well, and, and just to buffer what you said, I grew up a millennial too, and I'm pretty much where, where I think Lee describes himself as after I gave him yeah. such a hard time. Uh, I just, yeah, I, thanks for that. I, I'll just let you go ahead and take the bullets for me. I'll just stand behind you. But even within that, Daniel, as you're pointing out, we still believed, or at least the way I was taught to believe, the many Christians that I associated with, we still believed at one point that these things were going to happen. So we thought that when the Lord did come back, there would be wars that took place before. A lot of these things would happen. And so even though we weren't necessarily jumping on every bandwagon that came along and said, this is it, this is it, this is it, it was always allowing room for possibility that, okay, well, yeah. and we don't really know per se um, when it's going to happen, but there are going to be wars and rumors of wars and these types of things. Even though we don't know when it's going to happen, there are some signs that are ultimately going to be pointing to the end time. But we didn't want to go as far as those who were premillennial and say, well, here's these specific signs. And quite frankly, it was very confusing. I remember being in seminary school and preaching school at Southeast Institute of Biblical Studies and going through Matthew 24, several of our professors had different thoughts and ideas on this passage. And so it depended upon whoever you had in class. And some of them, of, of course, disagreed. And they would point that out when you were in a different class and say, well, you know, so-and-so may have believed this or said this, but let me show you what the Bible really says. And yeah. so it was very confusing going through Matthew chapter 24 because, you know, okay, it's half of it, the destruction of Jerusalem and half of it talking about the return of Christ. And that's what I was taught. I was always taught to believe, well, some of it is about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then other parts are talking about the return of Jesus. And you did a great job in the first episode where we had you on to come and talk about that. I think you really did a great job breaking Matthew chapter 24 down. So we're not going to necessarily visit every single verse like we did earlier. But I do want to jump in and, and let's go ahead and start this conversation with this question. What are we to make of the passage, the wars and rumors of wars? That there, when when you know, this is when you know it's going to be close. Is when you see wars and rumors of wars. What are we to do with that in Matthew twenty four six? Yeah, great, great question. And first, let me talk about prophecy for just a second. I think when we think about prophecy, we think of like a fortune cookie. You know, you're like, oh, I'm gonna have a great weekend. You know, like prophecy is predicting <laughs> the future in kind of some kind of uh, supernatural, otherworldly way. And while I do think that that kind of prophecy in the Bible shows up, like in Genesis 3.15, you know, like uh, talking about your seed, uh, the seed of the woman's going to crush the serpent. It's going to bruise its hill, right? Yeah. So you have those kind of prophecies. And like Genesis 12, the promises made to Abraham, those promises. Um, but I think when you were reading the prophets, like I'm talking about the major and the minor prophets, and even Jesus and the apostles, it's less fortune telling and more divinely guided or inspired political commentary. You know what I mean? Like the, like the prophets would come around and they'd say, Hey, uh, you know, Babylon is going to fall and Babylon is going to fall to the Medes and the Persians because they did this and they did this and they did this. So we look at that. Is that like a fortune telling thing or is that like them being so in sync with God's justice and God's righteousness that they were able to see on the horizon something that was happening, something that was going on behind the scenes. You know what I mean? And so when I read Jesus, um, when I read Jesus's prophecies that he makes throughout scripture, like in Luke 19, 
what he says is, Jerusalem, had you known the way of peace, you'd be okay. But since you don't know the way of peace, your enemy is going to surround you. Your enemy is going to hem you in on every side. They're, they're going to take your lives. And then he wept over them. And so it's less, I'm predicting one day, you know, that all oh, Jerusalem's going to fall. No, it's, it's like, you guys are going down a path that, uh, that since you've made these decisions, the end is inevitable. You've already staked out the end from the very beginning, right? So when I read Jesus in Matthew 24, it's in the context of Matthew 23 that talks about the Pharisees and the scribes choosing ways of, uh, of meticulous observance over mercy and justice and peace. I read about him talking about in Matthew 23, you've taken the prophets and all of your fathers have stoned them and killed them and cast them out of the synagogues and you're doing the same thing. And I'm going to send you scribes and prophets and preachers and teachers and apostles and you're going to stone them and you're going to kill them and you're going to toss them out of the synagogues. And he says, and upon you is going to come the blood of every righteous person all the way back to Abel from the very beginning, right? Well, is, is he making like a, is he making like a, like a, you know, blindfolded prophecy there? Or is he saying, you guys are so bought in to this system of violence, this cycle of violence. If we have a problem with somebody, let's just kill them, that it's going to come back to haunt you before you know it, right? The, you already had in the time of Christ, the zealot movement. You read about these from, uh, from, uh, from Gamaliel in Acts chapter five, right? All, you know, the two different guys, the Egyptian and the other one who tried to rally the troops and they got shut down. Yeah. What Jesus is saying in Matthew 23 is you guys choosing and endorsing the cycle of violence is going to come back on you. And so in Matthew 24, Jesus starts off, you know, <clears throat> the disciples are like, check out these buildings. Jesus, aren't these awesome? Like these stones. And he says, guys, there's going to come a time when not one of these stones will be left upon another. And they immediately go in. Well, when is that going to be? What is going to be the sign of your coming? When is the end of age end of the age going to happen? And that's when Jesus launches in to all of this. So Jesus warning about coming wars, coming violence, coming coming bloodshed is based on his observance of the people's tendency to turn to violence whenever things weren't going their way. Whenever a prophet came around, whenever God tried to do something new among the people, instead of accepting it and embracing it, they threw them out. And every time they did that in the past, it always led to their destruction, whether it was with Babylon, whether it was with the Philistines, whether it was with Assyria. Anytime they turned to violence, it always led to destruction pretty much within the people's generation, right? And so in Matthew 24, when Jesus launches into this discussion about wars and rumors of wars, he goes on and tells them, you know, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, don't even go back to the city, flee to the mountain. Don't go back into your house. You got to go. Don't go get your clothes. Don't do nothing. Mothers who are nursing babies in those days, it's going to be tough because he was talking about a, a political um, conflict that was just on the horizon. You see, it's not just blind fortune telling about things that would happen 2000 years later with diplomats and countries that these that these first century Christians or followers of Jesus had never even heard of or could ever even dream of the technology that we have now. It was something that was looming on the horizon and had already begun to be stirred up with different conflicts and attitudes portrayed in Jesus's day. So, well, in that entire take on prophecy being a political commentary, you see a lot of that in the Old Testament. And there are several Old Testament scholars that have spoken to that and, and they put it in similar terms to you is, you know, these guys aren't foreseeing future events that are going to take place by looking into a crystal ball and having the Holy Spirit reveal it to them or having the Holy Spirit jack into their brain like the Matrix and they go into this fugue state and they see how everything's going to unfold. It's more like when Nathan approached David about the ewe lamb. And told him this story about the lamb. And David said, well, he just needs that. He's like, dude, you're the man. You are that man. It, it's They're reading what's going on in in their world and in their time. And that, that makes sense. Kevin, do you have anything that you want to add to that? Because I have a couple of questions and a couple of things I'd like to flesh out once no, we you're good. finish you're up good. this little plot thread. Yeah, go well, ahead. 
Well, in terms of Matthew 14, that all makes sense, or Matthew 24, I'm sorry. But in Revelation, that's where a lot of people get the imagery for the end times and what's going to take place. And I can remember when I was a kid, I can remember there was a brother in our church that I grew up in who did a lot of study on end times. He did a lot of study on numerology and looked for patterns in numbers and things like that, like a lot of people like to do. And one of the things that he would discuss were the four horsemen. He would talk about them and how you would have, you know, the the one rider with the scales and the bow on the white horse and then the red horse of war and then the black horse of a famine. And, you know, an ephah of barley for, for however much and an ephah of fine flour for this much and then the pale horse of death, et cetera, et cetera. And there are people that see imagery like that and they look at Ukraine, which creates and generate so much food for Europe and Northern Africa. You know, they grow wheat. They're a, they're a huge wheat exporter. And so right. people see that. And then they link it back to Gog and Magog. And there are statements about Gog and Magog. And people say, well, that, and I, I can remember hearing whenever I was a kid that Gog and Magog represent Russia because of this bear symbolism and all this other stuff. And so people see that they put these pieces together, they see these patterns emerge and it just becomes so crystal clear from that perspective. And, and I don't want people to think that I'm denigrating that, that perspective or that worldview. I understand why people believe it. Um, even though I don't believe it, but there are people that say, well, how much more clear could it be? So in those terms, what do we do with that imagery we see in Revelation? Because to a lot of people, Revelation, it's it's this mythic telling of the things that are going to unfold. But if prophecy could be, uh, what's the word, classified as a type of local political commentary, then it stands to reason that maybe Revelation falls into that category, too. Just what are your thoughts on that? I think I think you're spot on. Let me. All right, I'm going to answer all your questions. Okay, so Ezekiel. I'm taking after Kevin lately, and I'm asking a lot of questions in one. Thanks a lot for that, bud. <laughs> Sorry. Big question. Here's thirty. <laughs> Ezekiel thirty-eight two talks about the prince of Rosh, right? The prince of Rosh. I'm not kidding. This mm-hmm. you can go look the videos up. So people go Rosh. That sounds like Russia. So Ezekiel 38 is talking about Russia. Like, I'm not lying. Like, <laughs> okay. <coughs> dun, dun, dun. Now, the word Rosh, though, um, you know, it's like in the the feast day, Rosh Hashanah. It's the head <laughs> feast. So Rosh just means chief. Uh, New American Standard does translate it Rosh, but the uh, other versions, they typically translate that to chief priest or something. So one of the tendencies to associate Russia with Gog and Magog comes from that word Rosh, in Ezekiel 38 too. So I know that's probably on some of your uh, listeners' minds. And so I just want to put that out there. Now that we've got that, let's go to Revelation. First off, since we were in Matthew 24, I just want to point out that Matthew 24 uh, verses like 4 through verse 14 say the same thing that Revelation 6 does with the four horsemen and all that kind of stuff. You talked about famines. You talked about uh, earthquakes, things like that. All of that is found within Matthew 24. Like Matthew 24 says in verse 6, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, right? So when you when you read Revelation 6, you have these different uh, you have the you know you have the rider on the white horse who is given a bow and he's told to go out and to conquer. Then you have another uh, another uh, seal that's opened up, and now you have a rider on a red horse, and a sword is given to him, and he's going to go and bring about war. And then you have famine come, and then death come, and then there's martyrs, and then uh, the day of the Lord happens when the sun turns to darkness and the moon turns to blood. That's Matthew 24, piece by piece, like literally step by step. There's going to be war. There's going to be death. There's going to be famine. There's going to be earthquakes. The sun's going to be turned to darkness and the moon's going to be turned to blood. All of the imagery used in Revelation 6 is parallel to the imagery used in the first half of Matthew 24. And Matthew 24 says in verse 34, just to remind you, that those things would happen within that generation, right? 
Yeah. So there's no there's no difference in in the imagery between the two. So just because the imagery is over the top, you know, uh, men calling on the mountains to fall on us, right? That's something that Jesus quoted to this group of women that was following him, right? So these women are falling into the crucifixion, and uh, he turns around and he says, he says, "Don't weep for me. Weep for not your great 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 grandchildren, but weep for you and your children." Because there's coming a time when they're going to call to the mountains to fall on us and to the rocks hide us. So all the imagery used in Revelation 6 is repeatedly used by Jesus to talk about things that were that he said at least were within, within the generation. But let me bring something up about Revelation. We have a tendency when we read Revelation to jump right into the middle, to chapter 6 or to chapter 13 with the beasts, or to chapter 20 with the millennium. Whereas it'd probably be helpful to read the introduction to Revelation. The introduction to Revelation, Revelation 1, just says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Then he says in verse 3, now I want you to listen to the pronouns. Blessed is he who reads... And those who hear, so he, singular, those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written, which are written in it for the time is near. In the early church, when they would deliver letters, they didn't all have, you know, their cell phone where they could just open up the, their Bible app and go read Revelation 1.1, right? Someone would stand up with the letter and read it to the people within the congregation. So he says, blessed is he who reads. That is the person who originally got this letter and read it to the congregation, he would be blessed, and those who heard would be blessed. Why? Because he says, for the time is near. The words in Revelation were for them to heed, were for them to pay attention to, because it was something specifically do, uh, dealing with their immediate future. Revelation 2.10 says, do not fear. This is in the New American Standard. This is not my translation. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. These were things that were happening to them. And I think that when we take Revelation and apply it to, to our day, not only are we causing unnecessary fear, but we're also almost minimizing the very real suffering that these Christians were desperately seeking relief from 2,000 years ago. Daniel, let me ask you this, because most people who take a premillennial view they're obviously smart. They're sincere. There's a lot of true scholars who take that position. They've no doubt read these passages. And this this almost seems like it's too clear to miss. So what is the response when someone who is premillennial, when, when you point this out to them, are those who have written on this topic and they address these passages, what is what is their response? How do they understand these passages? And how do, how do they try to rationalize these verses saying that the events in this letter, they're going to be taking place shortly, and then turning around saying, well, I know it's been 2,000 years, but these events may be you know, happening soon, or there may be another 1,000 years or 2,000 years, because nobody's going to sit here and say 2,000 years is soon. 2,000 years is a short yeah. period of time. And that letter would have done these Christians absolutely no good if they are being warned about events that are not going to take place until 2,000 years later that's going to have nothing to do with them, physically speaking. So what would the response be by those who are premillennial when you put these verses in front of them and say, well, it says these events are going to take place shortly. What do you do with that? Sure. And I'm not, I don't want to misrepresent anybody. So I'm not going to pretend like I have every response, but I will give the ones that I've heard. And I've heard basically three. Um, the first one is, uh, this is from a specific type of, <laughs> of premillennialist um, called mid-axe dispensationalism, whatever. They say that these letters that were written uh, by Peter and James and, and, uh, and John were actually written to a future generations of Christians for which these things will be true, <laughs> that these things will be at hand. So they're not even written for us. We just have to follow Paul's writings. That's one thing I've heard. Although Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, that upon us, he's talking about them, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And he said, the devil, or you'll, you'll, crush, the, you'll crush the devil under your feet shortly. So I don't know how they work with those, but 
whatever. That being what it is. <laughs> now I'm assuming, other, I'm assuming most premillennials do not hold to that position, right? That's more. That's of right. A that's fringe. a minority. Okay. Yes, but it is a position that we just follow Paul's writings. Um, another position is, um, it's like this continuous historical method. Like, okay, yeah, Revelation one and Revelation two. Yeah, a lot of that had to do with their immediate future, maybe with the persecution under Domitian or the persecution under Nero, depending on what date they take. Um, but this other stuff obviously hasn't happened. So while the first part, yeah, it was for their immediate future. Yeah, there's other stuff in Revelation that obviously hasn't taken place. Obviously, we haven't seen Jesus. Uh, every eye hasn't seen Jesus, which with a globe, you wonder how every eye could see. Whatever. Um <laughs> <laughs> you uh, hey, obviously it's flat, man. Quit, quit hey, trying to, to bust the ancient world views here, okay? That's that's right. Obviously, the earth hasn't ended. Obviously, you know, all this stuff hasn't happened. So, yeah, some stuff was at hand, but not everything. And well, that's Daniel, the, that's that's the view that I was taught, and yes. and quite frankly, that's the view you have to take if you're not a full preterist. And that's what that's that's why I think what you're saying not just tonight, but in some of your views on preterism, it makes perfect sense because if you're looking at the book of Revelation, I have to admit I'm being inconsistent to say, ha ha, look at all those premillennials. Have they not read yeah. Revelation chapter one, verse one? It's right there in the first verse. And then I, I go and, and then I go to like the last two or three chapters in the book and go, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, now this is in the future, right? Like these few chapters are in the future. So I, I readily admit that, and that's why I'm I'm more instead of like uh you know I, I, like a millennial and and all I'm more like agnostic on this I guess you can yeah. see when it comes to this well, view because I don't really know where I stand but I do think that that's a a good point you're making that you really can't consistently hold to the view that says. We're going to take Revelation seriously for what it says. These things are going to take place shortly. These things are going to soon happen. And then pick and choose what we think has taken place and what we think hasn't. Yes, and, and that's why that's why I'm a preterist, you know. And, and it's honestly for me, like, <laughs> if you if you if, if this just if this doesn't convince you at all, it doesn't if this doesn't convict you at all, you're still my brother or sister in Christ. But just like so, you know that where I'm coming from. If I were just to say that. At hand doesn't matter. Shortly doesn't matter. When Jesus said this would happen within his generation or before his disciples would die, that doesn't matter. I don't know if I could like, <laughs> you have to understand that preterism saved my faith. I haven't really shared that story much, but I was on the edge of atheism, like literally. So I don't know, and this might be a flaw on my part, how I could keep my faith without taking the position I do. Because I would, it just seems inconsistent to me. So I really For you, with you that. would, yeah, you would have had to have sacrificed your intellectual integrity. And I still would. Now, I would love for someone to explain it for me in a way that I could like grasp because I would love to be able to like have relationships that I lost over this thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, just for me, it's, it's, I just can't, just can't do it. Okay. I'll ruin Revelation for you later, but we won't worry about that right now. <laughs> um, uh, let's <laughs> well, let's so, take a look. We we have just to kind of recap what we talked about yeah, so yeah. far. We've talked about the the differing perspectives on eschatology. We've given just a very general overview. It's by no means meant to be exhaustive. Uh, we talked a little bit about Matthew twenty four with the wars and rumors of wars. We talked about the the you know the famines, the horsemen, Gog and Magog. Another idea. Um, that has presented itself that I have seen kicked around is that Putin is Vladimir Putin. The president of Russia is the man of sin that's mentioned. What is it in second well, Thessalonians? Or is it first Lee before we jump to that real quick? Yeah. Cause I, I did interrupt you, Daniel. Are there any other ways that people try to rationalize? Uh, uh, yes. Ration rationalize, rationalize. rationalize. Oh, there we go. Sounds rationalize. Like. Yeah. Rationalize revelation one and saying that soon doesn't mean soon or near doesn't mean near. Yes. And I want to, before I, before I answer that, I do want to emphasize that this isn't just like two random passages out of revelation one, as if this was a thought that John had at the beginning of revelation. And then he lost it towards the end in, in revelation 22 and verse six, for example, he says that that uh, an angel came to him to show him things which must soon take place. 
And then Jesus says three times, I am coming quickly. And then he says again in verse 10 of Revelation 22, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book for the time is near. Now I, I bring up that last passage because the other response that people give Kevin is, well, you know, Daniel, one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. So at hand, that could be a millennium to God or two or four, you know? So they look at it from God's perspective. The problem that I have with that is this passage I just read. Well, there's a lot of problems I have, but the passage I just read says, do not seal the words of this prophecy up because the time is near. You know, in, in Daniel 12, Daniel's like, what's going on here? Like, <laughs> what are you showing me, God? And the angel says, Daniel, you seal this book up because this is not for your time. Now, that, according to the traditional view of when Daniel was written, that was about 500 or so years before Jesus. So he says it's not for your time. That was just like 500 years. John says, or rather John is told, do not seal the words of this prophecy for the time is near. So God knows how to tell time, right? Like God <laughs> knows how to say when something is near, when something is, is far away. But more importantly, the Christians who are being persecuted, uh, like we were talking about Second Thessalonians, Paul told them, you're going to receive relief from your persecution when God persecutes the persecutor. Is, is the language that's used there. Uh, it talks about pressure. You're receiving pressure. And when the one who's giving you pressure receives pressure themselves, you're going to receive relief. If Paul was just like dangling that out in front of him, you know, like a carrot and a stick, you know, like riding a donkey or something, he's being dishonest. He's being intentionally misleading and he's giving them false hope. He promised them real relief from their present ongoing persecution and just to wave our hand at it and say, well, well, the day one day is with the Lord a thousand years, a thousand years, one day, it totally undoes what Paul is trying to do for that first century church. So that's yeah. the last response that I've heard from every side. So that there's your, uh, well, answer. And, well, well, and I want to just revisit that for a second and I, and I sure. will, we'll move on here cause we're, um, yeah, we're already 40 minutes into this, but you had brought up how this is something that that saved your faith. And I think it's important for people to understand the perspective you're speaking from, because a lot of a lot of people today, including non-Christians, including Muslims, people of other faiths, this is like the de facto argument that Jesus, we are not going to follow Christianity because Jesus did not deliver on his promise. And this this is why this is so serious to to not all not just all Christians, but especially you and someone who is who is really struggling with these passages. That here you have Jesus promising these things are going to come come to uh, you know come to come come, come to, to pass come to pass. Man, I tell you what, I need to do my exercises more before I get on this podcast. Yeah, but these things that are going to come to pass, these things that are going to happen quickly, soon, et cetera, et cetera, as you've been talking about. And we see that language all throughout Paul's letters. Clearly, Paul believed Jesus was coming back soon. We see that in Revelation, as you pointed out, not just at the beginning of the book, but even in those chapters that, especially in the churches of Christ, we quote all the time about this is what's going to happen at the end of time, even though these are smack dab in the middle of text saying that the this is going to happen soon. I am coming quickly. I'm coming soon. These events are going to take place, uh, and and it is inconsistent. I mean, I will I will readily admit it is inconsistent to take some of those passages with the exact same Greek words, the exact same tense, with the exact same language and the exact same context, and say, well. That's only some of these things, but not the things we've been taught to believe, because certainly those things are still in the future. And there is some special pleading that takes place. And so not everyone necessarily has that dilemma that that you are faced with, per se, because maybe they've never considered it from that perspective. But I did want to point out that the reason why to you, especially from our conversations we've had in the past, this is so important, is because a lot of people do point to this and say, well, either Jesus returned or he didn't. If he didn't return when he said he was going to, he cannot be the true Messiah. That would make him a false prophet. Yeah, uh, Bart Ehrman has an excellent book called Jesus, the Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium. And if you just if you just want to read like the introduction in the first chapter, it's worth your money. And he talks about how he talks about all these failed prophecies in the New Testament, you know, that would be failed prophecies if they 
if yeah. they weren't fulfilled. Uh, but then he says, uh, then he starts going through history and shows how every generation, basically, that's might be a hyperbole, thought that their generation was the terminal generation. Their mm-hmm. generation was when things were really going to go down. And every generation has been wrong. Uh, there was a book written, what, 88 re- reasons that the rapture would happen in 1988. And all 88 <laughs> reasons were wrong. And Catch then, like, your title. Yeah. Then they recalculated all this kind of stuff. Uh, the restoration of Israel in 1948 was supposed to be the countdown for a 40-year generation until the end. And 1988 came and it went. 2012, we were all excited about 2012, right? Or what about uh, Y2K? so much fun. You know, the, the computers are going to reset and everything's <laughs> going to die. And every major prediction that the end was going to come has failed. Now I look at that like Elijah looked at the prophets of Baal, like they're jumping on the altar, they're cutting their wrists, you know? And then Elijah's like, well, maybe God took a bathroom break, you know, maybe he's <laughs> off like hunting or something. You know? And that's why I look at these failed end times prophecies. And to me, each one is kind of like a punch in the gut, you know, like they're saying, this is what Jesus is going to do. And it doesn't happen. And then the lady comes with her book cart and she pulls all those books off the shelf. And then she puts the ones for next year up the shelf. And then she goes, sell the other ones in the dumpster, you know, it's or puts like the boy who cried wolf over and over and over and over again. It, and it becomes a, it, it really becomes a bad mark, a bad look on Christianity overall, even though not all Christians are like that. Not all Christians believe like that. Yeah. It, it really paints Christianity in a very uh, naive way uh very ignorant where okay well like you said it's next generation is going to come along and they're going to say the exact same things we said and this is this is going to be you know this is it this is the this is when the lord's going to return these are the end times and that just continues to play over and over just rinse and repeat but lee going back to, to what you were asking i just wanted to to make that as a side point to let people know if they have struggled with that before there are alternatives for understanding these texts in such a way where Jesus did fulfill these prophecies. Jesus did come back in the time in which he said he would and the times in which John said these events would take place and Paul and others. It just is it just is uh, did not happen in the way that we were taught it happened or the way it was going to happen per se. And we're about to talk about that with Lee's question. Yes, and so to that end, one of the things that that I have heard kicked around is this idea that the man of sin, this mysterious character that that the Bible speaks of, this man of sin? Well, hey, it's Vladimir Putin. That that's who it is. But but I've heard people say that the man of sin is uh, the Pope. I've heard people say that the man of sin was President Barack Obama. I heard some Christians on the left say that the man of sin was President Donald Trump. Um, I've heard of as many rumors that the man of sin was either X, Y, or Z individual as I've heard that the Antichrist (laughs) has to be X, Y, or Z individual. And so there are people that are saying that and they're getting all geared up. They're getting all worked up. The end is nigh. They're biting their nails, chewing their cuticles. What would you say? What insight do you have over this identity of the man of sin? And is it the Russian president, Vladimir Putin? Okay, I'm going to answer that question in two ways. And one way is the is the way that I think Paul lays it out in 2 Thessalonians 2. And if you might want to flip over there if you're not like driving in the car or something. Um, but the other way is probably going to surprise you guys. The answer is yes. He's absolutely the man of sin. What? Here's what, here's <laughs> what I mean by that. <laughs> Please do not stop listening. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Listen, listen. That sound listen. Like man's going to be replayed over and over. I know, I know. Listen, listen. believes Putin is a man of sin. <laughs> okay, so here's the thing about Revelation. Here's the thing about Jesus' prophecies. If it's true that anytime that someone comes up and tries to win over the world through violence, through death, and through destruction, that 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 everything goes wrong that you need to flee to the mountains that you know uh that they're going to bring death upon themselves that those who pick up the sword are going to die by the sword if that was true for Jesus's day if that was true for Amos's day and Hosea's day and Isaiah's day that's still true for our day like if someone's trying to win over the world through violence they're going to come to an end it's inevitable that it's going to happen 
And so what I want to try to warn us is, yes, we read these passages in their historical context. Yes, Matthew 24 is specifically about the fall of Jerusalem. Yes, Revelation is about the uh, the Jewish zealots rebelling against, against Rome and the Jewish uh, persecution that was going on in that time and everything associated with that. But within those very specific prophecies are also timeless principles of what happens when someone tries to perpetuate a cycle of violence. What happens when someone doesn't choose the gospel way of sacrificial nonviolence that the heavenly kingdom is all about. So I wanted to throw that shock factor out there. That <laughs> well, it was a shocker. You heard me give yeah. one of my best Hank Hill impersonations. <laughs> <laughs> but but now that I said that, you know, just kind of Lee literally us. fell out of his seat, man. I wish yeah, everybody could. I actually came yeah. really close. Yeah, I got to switch the videos. <laughs> but <laughs> no, that's um, I wanted to say that to say again, just because we're putting these prophecies and things within their first first century context, we don't want to minimize that when someone is acting like this, yeah, they're a son of perdition. Yeah, they're a man of lawlessness. And yes, uh, and yes, the only thing that can stop them is the sword that comes out of the mouth of the rider of the white horse. Not that comes out of his sheath, you know, that comes out of his mouth, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of peace. That's the only thing that'll ever bring true peace to the world. In other words, and, this is a reap what you sow principle. Yeah, ex exactly. So let's take a look at 2 Thessalonians 2. Uh, so 2 Thessalonians 2 is where Paul talks about the man of sin. And I wonder if half the people that talk about the man of sin, like even know what passage, you know, they're referring well, to. I introduced it. Like I've heard people say, and I've read people saying, oh, the man of sin, there it is. And I'm, and I'm thinking, okay, is that first or second Thessalonians? <laughs> yeah. I know it's a Thessalonian letter, but so, yeah, to, to your point. Yeah. That's absolutely a valid point. Yeah. It's not Seriously. in revelation. No, it's not. Yeah. Now there are similarities. Uh, whatever. Okay. Never mind. Okay. Second <laughs> Thessalonians two two. Uh, we want this to be an hour podcast, not a four hour. Um, he says, I I don't want you to be worried. I don't want you to be uh, quickly shaken from your composure, or be disturbed, either by a spirit, or a message, or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Okay, so Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, and he says, if somebody's writing to you and says that the day of the Lord has already happened, don't believe them because of what I'm about to tell you. Now, let's take a step back and think about Kevin's question a second ago. If their perception of the day of the Lord was it would happen in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trump, the earth would dissolve, the literal elements, hydrogen, helium, lithium, everything would literally catch on fire and melt and go away forever. And there would literally be this huge white throne and everybody would fly up into the air out of the graves and off the planet and stand before this, like, and watch a movie of their life. And God's like, okay, you did 12 good things and four bad things to heaven you go, you know, or uh, the correct answer was Mormon. Sorry. Uh, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> then how could anybody in the first century convince anybody else that that had already taken place. Like if that was their view of what the coming of the Lord was, would Paul really have to write and be like, now guys, if somebody writes to you and says, this has already happened, you probably shouldn't believe them. Like, duh, just look at the, look at the churchyard, right? Like the trees <laughs> are still here. Like we haven't flown up into the air yet. Like, of course these things haven't happened. Right. So already, already in second Thessalonians too, I think we're seeing some things that are a little bit strange. But then here's what he says. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy or the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Does it seem like Putin's doing that right now? But notice what he says. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God, the temple of God was destroyed 2,000 years ago. <laughs> I don't know how Putin's going to be sitting in the temple of God. Unless they're talking about the Russian Orthodox Church. <laughs> but, but keep going here. He says, don't you remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you all this? And you know, you ready? You know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work only he who now restrains 
will do so until he's taken away. So, you so what you're people. saying is Putin's 2,000 years old. He's a vampire. And that's how all of this works. <laughs> just like uh, just like Keanu Reeves, you know, the pictures of Keanu Reeves and the Queen. Yeah, they never age. Okay. So a couple of things here. One, the man of lawlessness would sit in the temple of God. Number two, the mystery of lawlessness was already at work. Number three, he, he put a pronoun, you know, he's talking about a person here. The one that was restraining him was already doing the restraining. So something was going on in the first century that the church at Thessalonica knew about um, that was restraining this man of lawlessness who was ready to be revealed, like who was already alive at the time and who was going to take a seat in the temple of God. So again, looking at it from their perspective, like when they get this letter, they open it up and they're like, I mean, how, what conclusion would they reach other than this is about to go down? Right. It's like if I were to go up to, you know, I would go to my uh, grandparents' house and they had this trunk and in there they have like these love letters that they wrote to each other before they got married. And, uh, you know, the one letter says, says, uh, you know, said now granddad, you know, or grandma, she's, she's passed away. It says, says, honey, Paul, I'm coming to see you. I'm coming soon. And I run downstairs. I'm like, mama, 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 look, grandma's coming. She's coming soon. Look, it says it right there. I'm reading somebody else's mail. And when we read second Thessalonians, we're reading the mail that Paul sent to the Tesla, the Thessalonians telling them that the mystery of lawlessness was already at work. So there you go. That's how I'd answer that, Lee. I don't okay. see how you can take it out of the first century. So who do you believe then is the man of lawlessness? I, okay. Dude, this is like a whole podcast. Um, I think that the mystery of lawlessness, if, if you look at how the word lawlessness is used, especially like in Matthew 24, um, I think it relates to the rebellion uh, of the of the, uh, of the the Jewish people against Rome. Because that, that is what brought there. Yeah. And that's yeah. why I said apostasy or rebellion. When we think about apostasy, we typically think just of religious apostasy. Um, but I, I don't see any reason to look at it as uh, as also a political apostasy too, as a rebellion against Rome. Um, because that's ultimately what Jesus said would bring about their destruction. Um, specifically, let me just read you this passage because it, it kind of goes, you know, I, that's such a strange position that people have no idea how to take it. So uh, in, in Luke 19... Jesus approaches the city and he says in verse 42, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave you, uh, leaving you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus said that the thing that's going to lead to their destruction is them not taking uh, his way of peace seriously. And he said over and over again, if you pick up the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Remember Peter cut off his ear, right? Peter cut off the servant of the high priest's ear and Jesus healed it. And he said, Peter, if you take up the sword, you die by the sword. Then he turns to the people and he says, do you come to me with swords? He's, he's given them a warning that if they go down this path of violence, it's going to come back and, and hurt them. Right? So that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's really, really helpful. And, you know, I, I really appreciate the two pronged approach that you take to Second Thessalonians there and how you describe the man of sin and and this this idea of lawlessness, because you, you put it in a way that that makes it easy to understand. I mean, of course, there is a principle there that we can all glean from. And of course, you know, that's something that we'll that we'll talk about later. There's a principle there that can apply. And we'll discuss that in a, in a future episode. Um, but there's also the very direct correlation with what they viewed and with what they had in mind. And I think we lose that a lot of times. Remember, we read the scriptures. It's something, Kevin, that you've talked about before at length. It's something that I have mentioned, too. We tend and, and Daniel, you said it earlier in this episode, we tend to read ourselves and yeah. we read our time and we read our situations into the text itself to find a greater degree of meaning or application of that text within our own lives. And when we do that and we forget about the people that it was written to, we forget about their day and time that they lived in and the purpose it would have served them. Right. We, we fail to see that when we try to make it fit our own day and time in our own lives. 
Yeah. And I think that when we read the word you, we read me, right? Instead of you, the Thessalonians or you, the Corinthians. Um, One quick question people are going to have is what in the world does the fall of Jerusalem have to do with people in Thessalonica? All right. You've got to go back and read both letters and the context in which they were written, which was Acts 17. The persecution that they were enduring was Jewish persecution. Now, that doesn't mean all Jews. That's not an anti-Semitic thing. That's just the words from Acts 17. The people that were persecuting them, that were running Paul from town to town and causing them so much grief, was this sect of Jews that was causing them these problems. And so for them to receive relief, it, it would come whenever the Roman Empire would do some very horrible things you know, to the Jewish people. So that, that would bring about their relief, though, because that was the main persecutor of the day. Uh, if, you, if you remember, like in Acts the uh, the people trying Paul that were Gentiles, they're like, who cares? This guy's not doing anything. You know, even even the people who tried Jesus were like, what? What are we doing? Like this, this is so silly. And yet it was it was the Jewish people that were pushing and pushing and pushing for that to happen. So that's why it's relevant to the church at Thessalonica or to the church at Ephesus or to some other Gentile church. Well, and we miss so much of this because we do read the Bible mainly as a message for me. What can I get out of it? What is this saying to me? And that is not a bad question in and of itself, but we have to go through several layers before we get to that, before we start saying, well, what does this mean for me? How do I apply this to my day and time? We have to go back and, and ask ourselves, well, who's who's being written to? Why are they being written? What like What's going on here? What's happening? And all of those things are just vital. All those things are very important in understanding what's going on. And so I think that when you look at just the Bible itself and how we understand scripture, how we understand the Bible. It's not just with prophecy. We're guilty of looking at the Bible and trying to modernize it and domesticate it in so many different ways because we want the Bible to be able, we've been taught with this post enlightenment idea that we should be able to go to the Bible and within just a few minutes know everything we're supposed to know. We want a, a very quick and easy answer, and if we can't get that, we get upset, or we think that we have to look for the quick and easy answer instead of realizing that the, every verse has a context, and not just a textual context. It has a historical context. It has a, a literary context. It has it has a a, um, a cultural context, a situational context. There's so many different types of context that every single verse in the Bible has, and especially when you're dealing with prophecy. I mean, it's hard enough trying to understand and interpret passages that are just straight-up letter or prose narrative, but when you get into actual prophecy, there's there's just another complexity that's added to that because we're trying to read not only in their own context, but what it would have meant to them, what these figures of speech meant, because we try to make it fit what we think today. Like you were talking earlier about the, the uh, what were you talking about in Ezekiel where it sounded like Russia? Or, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, it's like, what in the world? I mean, that like, no, that's not what that's dealing with. But anyway, I, I just think that that's some really good points you've brought out. And we're going to end up having you back on, if you're good with it, for another episode. So it's not going to be a part two. We feel like we've, we've really wrapped this up. But we want to talk in the next episode about practical applications of end times prophecy and what it does mean for us today. And so that's something that we're really going to spend a lot of time with. And most importantly, what the future holds for us, because I'm not saying that like everything's done, that there's nothing left for us. I'm saying that the Bible is specifically talking about a specific, yes, a certain event, but that the future is amazing for us. And we'll get into that next week. Yeah, and that's a good question, too, because a lot of people think, well, if this is it, if this is all on the past, then is there anything to look forward to? Is there any future hope? And yeah, we'll get into that and talk a lot about that. Right now, um, we have never had this happen, and I hope this is still being recorded. I don't know what happened to Lee. He just dropped off the map, and so we're trying to get him back because he is the one who is the, the tech guru and is the one who records these things, and so... Oh, he just messaged and said he's still here. But you just can't talk, but this is still being recorded. Is that right? Okay. All right. So before we do head out, Lee, um, 
Daniel, do you want to go ahead and just tell us a little bit about where people can find you? If they want to look at your resources, if they are interested, something you've said in this episode has really piqued some interest that they want to study and get a little bit deeper with, go ahead and tell us where people can find you. Sure. Uh, you can find me at danielr.net. That's D-A-N-I-E-L-R.net. And it has all my resources, all my articles. I never delete anything unless I think I was being like really mean. And so you can actually go back and see a lot of my faith journey through there. Um, but you're also, brave, man. You're brave. I delete hey, a lot of old, my old stuff. Oh, I just leave it up there because I mean, I, you know, I, I need to remember where I came so I don't repeat my mistakes. Hey. Um, if, hey. but it is what it is. This. Yeah, that's right. If you um, have struggles with your faith at all about this subject, don't go to my website. Reach out to me and talk to me because um, if this would break your faith, don't go to my website. You know, I don't even know why you're listening to this still, <laughs> but, uh, but if, but if this does, uh, if this is something that you need, reach out to me personally through Facebook or through Twitter or something. And, and I would, I would love to help you out any way that I can. Awesome, man. Yeah. And Daniel, you are really a valuable resource, man. I said it at the beginning of the episode, Lee and I both love to have you on because you do a fantastic job of breaking things down and, uh, and you're also, I know you're working on some higher education as well, just continued uh, education in your studies. And so when I say scholar, you know, there are scholars who already have the credentials. There are scholars who are working on it. And uh, I, I put you in that category, man. You know, you're, you've been studying. I know you've put hours upon hours upon hours, countless hours just in this topic, study hours just with this one topic alone of eschatology and a lot of different facets of this. And so I know you would be more than happy to talk to anybody. And I just want to reiterate, if this is something that you feel like could help your faith, uh, maybe these are some tensions that have already crossed your mind before. And you've wondered, are there alternative ways of understanding these texts? The answer is yes. <laughs> there are definitely alternative ways. And that's what our podcast is about. We want to help build people's faith. And that doesn't always mean agreeing with what I think is right or what Lee thinks is right or even what Daniel thinks is right. But that's why we have so many different people on here. So each person can figure out faith in their own life and what makes sense to them and still be able to trust in Jesus, still be able to follow him with that love ethic of treating other people the way we want to be treated. So with that said, we're going to go ahead and sign off once again as Lee, since he's is gone right now. He can still hear us apparently, but as he always says, please like this uh, podcast. I guess like it. I'm not on social media, but uh, make comments. Go ahead and join uh, if you're not already a part of our mailing list. We always have that link out on each uh, each time that we post and drop a new episode. Make sure you join that, and so that way you'll be reminded, and we'll also put some extra data in there as well, some extra information for you to have when it comes to when my new book's coming out. And we still do not know when that's happening, but it is going to be soon. And when I say soon, it could be 2,000 years from now. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> a day is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is like a day. But anyway, once again, thank you so much for listening. And as Lee would say, we hope you have a good night. <laughs>